Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, I am joined by my, my dear friend, Dr. Patrick Steffen. Uh, Patrick and I met at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., where we attended together in the uh, Doctrine of God class of our, of our very, very dear professor, the late Dr. Howard Griffith, who is, was very dear to both of us. Um, and since then, Patrick has been a wonderful pastor. He's had uh, uh, several pastoral um, uh, gigs and uh, is now currently the visiting lecturer of New Testament and Second Temple Judaism at the Reformed Theological Seminary in D.C., where we both attended. Uh, and Patrick also serves as a full-time chaplain in the, in the U.S. Army. Uh, of most me- immediate relevance is that, that Patrick's first book has just been published with Fortress Academic, based upon his dissertation at uh, Itliff School of Theology or Denver University. Uh, and it is called the, the Power of Resurrection, Foucault Discipline and Early Christian Resistance. In my judgment, this is a very compelling work that puts together many threads in modern ritual theory and in the in the study of Christian origins. Um, I'm very excited to talk to Patrick about this book and, and about his forthcoming work. So, Patrick, thanks for thanks for joining us today. Uh, audiences will know that I should, should know Patrick and I have uh, thrown things back and forth between each other for several years, and I have learned I've just learned an enormous amount from him. So, thanks again for for showing up on this. Uh, this humble program here. <laughs> well, it is my pleasure, and I uh, appreciate your interest in my work, and uh, you know the feeling is mutual. So, um, yeah, all right. Um, you know, one of the things, Patrick, I think is helpful uh, for people to kind of uh, think through and get on board a project is just to know how you, how you came upon the topic, why it was important to you. So tell us, I guess, first of all, uh, why did you choose this particular topic? And can you, can you, can you answer that and then summarize sort of what, where you landed in it? What, what became your distinctive argument? Yeah, so I started off with a, with a heavy interest in ideas of justification and so on and so forth. That's, that was my initial kind of, um, uh, that was my initial desire to study. But then, you know, I got thinking as I was reading various materials, most specifically Christopher Stendhal's article on uh, the introspective conscience of the West, which is you know, very, very prominent in, in justification mm. studies and such. And one of the things that bothered me about Stendhal in that was that he makes this proposition that the introspective self or the internalized self begins with Augustine and then it just kind of grows from there and then Luther kind of picks up on it. But I I kind of, I had this question like, well, you know, all you really did was punt it backwards a little bit. Like how did Augustine become introspective? What, what, What was behind that? A little bit. So that was kind of the beginning question that I had. And then as I was doing more research, I started to think through different questions. One of the most intriguing questions to me was from sort of a sociological perspective, how in the world did this very, very tiny sect called Christianity, this very tiny group of people, all of the sudden in the span of a couple hundred years, take over the largest empire of its day? It's really, really fantastic question to me. And we can answer it theologically, and, and we do, right? God's hand was, was moving these things, but how did it happen? And so that then, those two things then coupled with a lot of work that I was doing in in uh, the philosophy of Michel Foucault, who's one of my favorite theorists, um, I was doing a lot of reading and he talks a lot about the development of what he calls pastoral power in the early monasteries and how that contributed to what is presently called disciplinary power, which is very much an internalized sense of power. So I posited the idea that I could put these three things together very well and I, I think I did. I think that I, I came up with this, what I, as I started to read things, as I started to kind of develop my thoughts, I came to this realization that there's something unique going on in the early Christian movement that's shaping the way humans understand themselves, shaping the way we understand our relationship to one another and to the world and such. And, all, and, and it's doing this by introducing things that look very much like what Foucault calls disciplinary mechanisms of power, Mm. right? Time becomes more structured. The body becomes more articulated. Uh, um, Burial becomes, uh, uh, talking about burial becomes becomes prominent vis-a-vis the the, the empire. Uh, And and movement and worship spaces become more confined and more, um, uh, there are more partitions and walls. All of these things start to happen 
and they start to, in my estimation, create very much looks something that looks very much like what Foucault calls the creation of the individual. Um, hmm. And then from that, right, I I started to realize that what what's really behind a lot of this stuff is the Christian theology of the resurrection. Um, it's it's driving a lot of material movements and changes and conditions mm. in the early Christian church. It's not just an idea that lives in kind of lives in the mind, but it's something that has has impact on the way Christians structured their lives. And so as I kind of put these things together, I posited in essence that one of the major contributing factors to the massive and significant rise of of the Christian movement was um, was the shaping of the material conditions of Christianity through the idea of resurrection in a way that contested the power of the Roman Empire um, in some kind, in sometimes uh, uh, direct ways and sometimes indirect ways. So that's kind of the, the genesis of the whole. Problem. Yeah, yeah, that's already just incredibly fascinating and actually leads right into the second question. Um, uh, for those who are you know, kind of aware of what's going on in, in Christian origin studies. And we'll, we'll get back to actually several things you just said, because all of that's just fascinating to me. Um, uh, but, but one of the, for those who are aware of what's going on in kind of general Christian origin studies, there's, there's a lot of talk about sort of Christians subverting, you know, or, or imperial power in Rome. That, that, that paradigm is used to do a lot of work, uh, but it can be overused and underused, uh, I suspect. And so wanna, can you describe for us the, the basic idea and tell us ways in which you think it, it does and doesn't help us in a, in a more general way, read our New Testaments? Yeah, so I would say there's, there's basically kind of three approaches to this question. So did Christianity intentionally subvert, move to subvert the Roman Empire? And by that, change one set of values with another or take over the empire, so to speak, or challenge it, something like that. Um, you could go in, in the very strong direction where you find in works of the guys like Richard Horsley and such, where they would say in, in, in any sense of the word, yes, most definitely Christianity was undermining Roman power. Uh, they were doing this through hidden uh, discourse and language and back alley messages, and they were co-opting language of the empire, all of which was designed to replace the Basileia, the, the empire of Rome with the Basileia, the empire of God. And th that's kind of the argument, right? On the, on the complete opposite side of the spectrum, you might find guys like uh, Kim, for example, I think he's at Fuller, who, who kind of says, no, not, not really, right? The, just because some of the language is identical doesn't mean that it's doing anything political. It's really more, you know, just theological language that's being used by the authors of the day. And then kind of in the middle intermediary position, you might find a guy like Christopher Bryan, for example, who might say, yes, it, Christianity is challenging empire. There's no question about that, but they're doing it in a, in a way that's very similar to the prophetic critique that has always challenged empire, right? So Christianity is no different than the prophetic witness of the minor prophets um, or, or uh, the prophets who are critiquing the evils of empire. It's not something unique to Rome or the historical condition. It's just part of, it's part of the, the prophetic project to critique evil in, in, in whatever kind of governmental form that it, that it shows itself. So those are kind of the three approaches um, and I think you do find, right, I mean, there are whole monographs that talk about just little words of the use of, you know, empire or kingdom or peace or, you know, uh, faith, pistis, all of these things. And people will argue, yes, see, this is in fact subverting the empire uh, and, and it, because we connect it with this other little inscription. And sometimes you can go way overboard. And I've read some that are like, yeah, that's not really convincing. But I do find it helpful because there, you know, when we use theological language, in my estimation, we, off, we, we are very political in the way we use that theological language. I mean, look at discourse in the modern period. I'll bet you if you go forward a thousand years and you were to look back on Christian discourse in the 2000s, you would find a lot of overlap with what's happening in Washington, D.C. and how the language is being used. And we find that very similar thing happening. Like, I, you know, I quote a, a lengthy passage, which is very prominent. A lot of people know about it, the Preen Inscription, which talks about um, Augustus as the savior of the world. It uses language identical with what you find in the Gospels. Right. Um, it talks about the introduction of a, a euangelion, the gospel, so to speak, or the yeah. good news from of the emperor. Uh, and so there's all of this kind of overlap in language. And I personally find it 
hard to believe that there is not something going on there, kind of taking away the power of the empire and replay and kind of giving it uh, back to its rightful owner, um, so to speak. I also, you know, I don't, I appreciate Brian's approach in connecting it with the prophetic critique, but I still, I still have a problem with it insofar as this, um, the prophets of the, of the old Testament were not successful in the way that the Christian witness was successful. Something still happened, something still worked. So I tend to think that there's a little bit more subversion going on than just merely a prophetic critique and Rome just happened to be the one that was getting critiqued. I think that we, when we read Christian origins and when we read the New Testament even, we have to be able to place it in its social and historical context. And that includes the context of oppression and taxation and brutality in the empire. I mean, Rome was not a pretty, pretty place for the peasantry. Uh, and, and Horsley is good at, I think, pulling some of these things out. This is why you have all of these uprisings of brigandage and, and, uh, and, and bandits and stuff, um, because people are enormously frustrated with, with how things are being run if you're not at the higher echelons of society. Um, you know, so so I think that kind of answers the question a little bit. Yeah, no, that's that's really helpful, uh, especially that taxonomy is very helpful because you know I've heard these names and such, but it's helpful to kind of hear them put on a uh, a sort of useful graph. And yeah. I, I there's kind of mediating positions between them and such, but that's a that's a very helpful taxonomy I think for for most people, especially those who aren't uh, informed of the debate as such. Um, uh, another thing that's going on in your work, of course, is the is the use of Foucault, and it's worth kind of bringing that up uh, because, as you well know, the the name Foucault can take on all sorts of uh, resonances. You know, isn't he uh, one of these scary postmodern people? Aren't we uh, supposed to be worried about you know kind of creeping cultural Marxism these days and such? Uh, but tell us. You know, your interest in Foucault, it seems to me, kind of came outside all of that kind of culture war stuff. You know, how did you, what is it that brought you to Foucault and how do you, how did he help you, you know, read your New Testament? Yeah, you know, it started just with, with an immense interest in his work. I mean, he's a very fascinating writer. I find him very, I find him among the cultural critics, among mm -hmm. theorists, he's accessible because he's so historically grounded and the way he writes I think is masterful he gives these kind of these punctuated descriptions of very very close readings of history and then he kind of zooms out and shows how things have changed as history has has kind of moved on um, he's Foucault's kind of concerned with the ways by which historical and social conditions shape the way we see the world um, and and for him knowledge is um, knowledge is connected to historical conditions. It's kind of limited in a certain sense. People make their knowledge claims based on the historical period that they are in. So knowledge works differently as, his, as history develops. Now, this is not to say that there's not true and false, right? This is not to say that there's not some sense right. of objectivity, but the way we understand what is legitimate knowledge and what is illegitimate knowledge is, is, is based on the historical condition in which we find ourselves. That's kind of how Foucault reads history. Um, so, so he talks a lot about, so I found him interesting just because, you know, he kind of asks this question, how does power work on people, right? How do, how do we get someone, how, how do, how, why do people do what they do, right? And that's, this, is a, this is a question that I think is important in ministry settings. It's a mm. question that's important in Christian settings. Why do people do what they do? Why is it, you know, that you might have, uh, on a rainy day, um, on a rainy day, you've got, you know, a, a stoplight and it's coming down. The guy doesn't have an umbrella, we might say, for example, and there's no cars coming, but he's not crossing the road because there are a bunch of orange lights on the other side that make up a hand. What, what causes that, right? Why would someone make that decision and not just say, I'm just going to go, right? Um, and, and then why do people resist that at the same time? So why, how do all of these kind of odd ways of, of living in the world make us act in particular ways? I found that very interesting, mm. right? So the more I read, especially Discipline and Punish, Discipline and Punish is probably his most prominent work um, in, in the field of social sciences, especially, um, I was just fascinated by it. And then all of a sudden, as I'm writing my dissertation, all of his lectures um, at the Collège de France start to come out and be published. And I just start kind of voraciously reading him. And it gives all this background to how he sees power working, working through kind of macro historical, or rather we could say historical periodizations. Macro history is not a thing for him. Um, so kind of the way that hit, the way that power has shaped. So for example, in antiquity, 
the way you got someone to do something was you would beat them or flog them or crucify them. We don't do that now, right? And yet right. people still act according to social norms and conditions. Um, so so how, how did that change take place? Did we all of a sudden just become enlightened that we don't need to do that? Because I would say no, the way that we understood the human self changed. And so different micro politics or micro power uh, uh, could can begin to be used on the human body. So that's kind of, that's where my interest came from. Um, he, he certainly is connected to post-modernity, but I don't think necessarily in a bad way. I think that there are certainly some things that we, we could take issue with and question with, and we, you've got to read carefully. That's important. But um, I mean, a lot of people misread him, like, you know, the whole idea, and, and I, I mentioned this a lot because a lot of people, you know, when he says um, it's not that knowledge is power, but that power is knowledge, for example, people will pull that quote out and say what he's saying then is just we create knowledge based on our ability to to kind of have power or not and it's it's not what he's saying actually what he's saying what he's talking about are those historical conditions that make knowledge appropriate so what is it in the historical condition that makes that legitimizes the knowledge that we use um and i mean in, in, in that he's talking specifically about the sciences and what makes the sciences um, legitimate in different historical conditions. Yeah. So I find him enormously helpful on all of those fronts. Um, and and I, even, I, if you, even if you wanted to criticize that category, it seems to me, or say that that doesn't capture everything, it sure does capture most things. Like, yeah. in other words, it's like, it's like, that's, that is actually how, we, if, if we're looking at it in terms of like, why do humans do what they do? That formula actually is fairly helpful in, in capturing uh, why most people do the things that they wind up having the behaviors and beliefs that they actually, yeah. you know, so. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, and that's, you know, if we were to connect it with kind of the, cult, the idea of cultural Marxism, which I think is a terribly problematic label anyways. Um, I mean, he certainly has a few connections, right? Because you've got, um, you know, he, in kind of a Marxist vein, um, he does really emphasize how material conditions shape the self more than ideas and ideology. In fact, he doesn't care for the term ideology. The ideas, in other words, are only as good as the material conditions that they produce or the material results that they produce in shaping the human self. And similarly, if we were also kind of connecting with kind of the critical theory school or the Frankfurt perspective or something like that, you know, really, that school is at their at the core. They're they're concerned with the importance of critically evaluating one's social and historical and economic and political surroundings and how that shapes the way we see the world. Um, and and that's he is concerned with that as well. Um, I think out of from my perspective, out of out of some fear, sometimes we just jump onto the subjectivity bandwagon, or we jump onto kind of these these different bandwagons without without giving these very good thinkers. Um, careful readings and generous readings at the same time while also being critical there's nothing you know that's important too being critical in these worlds but but to be generous i think i think charitable reading is a responsibility of, of the christian ethic in my estimation yeah you know. that should that should be uncontroversial i would think but it is <laughs> um um you know, it's interesting. You talk about the shaping of the body. You know, you know uh, that's a particularly interesting theme in Foucault. And, and in your chapter in the book on the body is particularly interesting. And, it, and it's here that we see some of the ways in which you, you draw, especially upon Foucault. I mean, you draw upon him throughout, but uh, but that chapter on the body, especially. Can you can you summarize the basic idea of the chapter on the body and, and how it helps us understand the development of uh, early Christian practice? Yeah, that was actually one of my favorite chapters to write. Uh, I think it's Good. chapter four. <laughs> I, remember. Um, I moved it around when I published because I thought it fit better and earlier than in my dissertation. Um, it was, it's a great chapter because it really shows kind of the genealogical development of the self is what I was trying to, to demonstrate, how one understands what a human is, right? And how, so Foucault is going to emphasize that with discipline, with the rise of disciplinary power, you have what he calls the, the invention of the individual, is what he says, the invention of the individual. Um, and what he means by this is you have the creation of what he calls the soul. Um, now, there's not, I, in fact, I'd like to work on a project eventually on what Foucault, a complete kind of analysis of Foucault's idea of the soul. Um, 
but he, he doesn't mean kind of a metaphysical thing like we mean in Christian theology. He's not talking about that. What he's talking about is really more like the internal self, the way we internalize our, our feelings and, and, and understand our, our kind of the thinking internal self. Um, so so in, in essence, he says disciplinary power requires that a, per, that, that a self, the subject, has both a body and a soul or an external and internal self. And the reason why this is, is because the manipulation or the movement of the body is what disciplines the internal self. So if I, so for example, um, some of the mechanisms of disciplinary power, he would say, is we train soldiers to march in a particular way. And what that is doing is not simply disciplining their bodies, but what it's doing is it's working on the soul. It's teaching them what is normal and what is abnormal, where to fit and where not to fit, how to be important and how not to be important. So all of these things are happening on the internal self. Similarly, he uses the idea of the panopticon. So the, so the, the concept is that one might always be being watched at any time. Now that works on the body. I might be being watched, but it's not doing anything to my body. The, the action on the body affects the internal self and shapes the way I see my movement in the world. I better act accordingly, right? So what I do in that chapter is essentially show, and I, I make the argument, and, I, um, and I, I'm quite convinced by this, uh, that, this is, that this is correct, and I'd like to pull this out more eventually, that the, the disciplined body that Foucault talks about can, could not have well, I wouldn't say could not have, was facilitated, I think, by the Christian understanding of the self. Because it's really not until the Christian period where we have full articulations of the person, the subject, who is dualistic, right? A body and a soul. And then this, and we have all of these, ar these articulations and things that are happening <clears throat> at, uh, in, in the kind of the early Christian period and as theology develops. And this now, and this is important. This is not to say this is not to say that they made it up or something like that. Right. Nor is it to say that the that, that the reality didn't exist before. But right. I think this is generally true. As Scripture is revealed, we come to understand ourselves greater, and we get to understand God and the world greater, and we get to articulate it more carefully. Right. Yeah. And I think this is what was happening. So a lot of a lot of scholars have noted that you know when you look at the Hellenistic concept of the self. The body, the body was not entirely unimportant. The body was important. That's why you didn't, you didn't want to lose limbs when you died because your, your body in the afterlife would replicate how your body was in the, in the present, how your body died, right? So the body was still important, but it, but it was kind of, um, uh, uh, what is, um, uh, one, one fellow calls it a kind of a, a, the soul is, is in, encapsulated in a slot machine waiting to get out, right? So the body's important, but the soul needs to get out. That's the whole, the, the, the emphasis right. is on the soul to leave the body behind. It's it, at the end of the day, it's not that important. And similarly in kind of more Hebrew scripture understandings, and we see this in the second temple period, there's um, Jews in antiquity don't talk about the body nearly as much as Greeks do, right? So there's not a lot of articulation that's going on but at the same time, there is more of an emphasis on kind of this psychosomatic unity, right? That the, that the body right. and the soul kind of intermingle together in a certain way, that they're not distinct uh, in that sense. And so as Christianity grows, there's this fuller articulation of this concept, this dualistic concept. And so I make the argument in that chapter that that articulation, that understanding of the self is instrumental to disciplinary power so that I understand that my body is important because my body is what will be raised again. This is not something to be discarded. But similarly, my soul is of equal importance. Um, and, and they're distinct in a certain sense, too, because my soul will reside in the heavens with, with God united with Christ uh, until the resurrection of the dead, and they'll be reunited. So they're both working together. So I make that argument first, and then I move into articulations of Jesus's resurrected body, which get really fascinating yeah. in, uh, in, in Christian antiquity. Um, Across the border, I mean, you know, when we look at some of the extra canonical works, some of the things that, that we, we now label kind of heretical or Gnostic, which there seems to be evidence that those were traveling around and people were like, hey, don't read these anymore. But they're, they're like curiosities in a certain sense. Sure. You find these strange things happening, like, you know, Jesus will show up and he often changes forms and he'll just show up at inopportune times. And, uh, and I, I um, my, my favorite... <laughs> my favorite uh, um, footnote is in this chapter where I footnote Joe Dirt 
the, the movie where Joe Dirt is talking about, um, you know, he says, you know, uh, my mom used to always say, do you want to be doing that when Jesus comes back? And so it's this concept that, that Jesus might appear at any moment. Right, and so right. We need to discipline ourselves as we're living life. Um, and so this, this starts to develop this idea that, well, Jesus might appear at any moment. He might show up behind locked doors. He might, in some of the, in some of the extra canonical gospels, he might show up in a boat. He might tell me what to do. He might ask me questions and I don't under, I don't recognize him. And we find this in Christian tradition too. I mean, the Hebrews talks about, book of Hebrews talks about, you know, entertaining angels unaware because we don't know that we're interacting with them. So always be on watch kind right. of thing. So, so th that kind of, that was kind of the development of, of the body and how that, how that shapes sort of um, the way we see ourselves and how we discipline ourselves as well. Right. <laughs> that, that's really helpful. Uh, it's funny. There's a, there's a, a kind of lapsed evangelical stand-up comedian named Pete Holmes who has a very similar, literal, I mean, quite literally a similar story. He has a, uh, one of his specials is actually named uh, Nice Try the Devil. Uh, nice try, comma the devil, uh, and that 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 sort of riff is based upon an experience he had where he was he was slight even though he was kind of an atheist he was a little bit worried about Harold Camping's uh, second coming mm -hmm. prediction. Yeah. And on the afternoon of Harold Camping's second coming prediction, um, he uh, was tempted to, uh, well, let's, uh, 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 this is a family show, so we'll be discreet. He was tempted to do something that uh, some men do sometimes on the internet. Uh, and he resisted that temptation, realizing that Jesus might show up at uh, whatever that precise predicted time that was today. And so it was sort of nice try the devil. You almost yeah. got me in hell, you know, but it's, so it's, it's still effective apparently, uh, you know, this, uh, yeah. this, this, <laughs> this impression that Jesus might come back at any moment. Um, uh, uh, so speaking of the resurrection of Jesus, you, you go on in the book to talk about how, uh, how, how Jesus resurrection shaped Christian liturgy and architecture and their understanding of martyrs. Um, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about the first and the last there. Um, what light does your work shed on the, on the why of the development of early Christian liturgy? I found this really fascinating in the book. Yeah. So, and, and I don't know if I was necessarily after kind of the, the why from sort of a, a genetic perspective, but really more that just the fact that this was going on. One of the things Foucault talks about in disciplinary power, what happens is you have greater articulation and control of time. So you need to, con you, you basically tell people when to be in different places at various times. And what we also see happening in the early Christian kind of growth is time becomes more structured. Um, and, and, you know, this is largely, you know, there's, there's some borrowing from, from Judaism on this, no, unquestionably, right, with Christianity's Jewish her, um, kind of past or heritage. But what happens now is people start to be immensely concerned with, with following the resurrection. So Easter debates become very, very important. When do we, when do we follow Easter? What do we do on Easter? Mm. How do we... How do we determine what we should do on the Easter day? And then from that, you have this, from, from that, you have this, um, this larger question that starts to develop. How do we structure the week? And so really the, the Christian week and the Christian year both center around the resurrection. That's the importance of Sunday and it's the importance of Easter. And it becomes more precise than really anything else we find, I think, in the Roman Empire that I found evidence of, where these two days structure the week and the year and make time kind of um, time more structured and, and, uh, and, and tell the Christian what is important in their life. Because, um, <clears throat> I mean, in the Roman world, the week wasn't, um, wasn't terribly important. You had different ways of reading the week. You had the nine-day week cycle, the seven-day week cycle, and it wasn't really standardized. It was the year that was important. And the year was important because... <clears throat> Because the year told you all of the things that Caesar that, that, that the Caesar did and what he wanted you to kind of worship him for and the gods and such. But the year centered around Caesar. And what Christians begin to do is they recenter the year around the resurrection and then they recenter their week around the resurrection as well. And so time becomes more more definitive. And that also begins to take place in the liturgical structure itself, where there as as things develop, 
as time develops, the liturgy of the early Christian community becomes more and more precise. So, uh, you know, baptism uh, rituals and such become more and more precise. So you're moving through these move through this this kind of trajectory toward the the end goal of liturgy, which was was the Eucharist, right? Which is where you found um, where you found Christ, and uh, we find examples where where um, bishops are told that they are. They are Christ communicating the Eucharist to, uh, to people. So Christ is kind of present in, in two aspects in liturgy in that, in that sense too. Yeah, that's really helpful. In particularly, in fact, one of the things to me that was just really fantastic about this work was helping me understand the significance of early martyrs. Uh, oh, yeah. in, in, in the early church, uh, you know, so for, for many of us, I, you know, the emphasis on martyrs in the history of our religion can, can feel rather foreign and maybe even sometimes a little superstitious in its emphasis, given the kind of pop popular religion inflection of that. Um, and so when we encounter it in the early church, it can easily feel like a kind of peculiar emphasis, you know, that seems kind of, you know, like something you see in a bunch of religions. But there's something distinctive going on in Christianity there. And it was, so, but also I'll, I'll let you say, you know, what do you think, what do you think the early development of martyr theory did in, in disciplining the Christian imagination? Yeah, this this was um this was a really really fascinating one for me to write as well. This chapter, um, yeah, mar- martyrs have always captured the imagination of, of Christians, right? Uh, and they do in most religious traditions. Elizabeth Castelli has written extensively about this and really really great works. Um, but uh, so what you have happening is you know as Christian as Christians start to enter this kind of world of martyrdom. They, well, they start to, rep, they do replicate in a certain sense, the martyrdom of Judaism, right? You have like the Maccabees, for example, the Maccabean right. martyrs. And it's important what the Maccabean martyrs say. When they are being killed by, Anta- by Antiochus Epiphanes, they, they don't just say, you know, we're dying for God. That's not what they say. They say, we are dying for God and God will raise us from the dead and he will punish you. <laughs> so it's like this, this threefold kind of thing. You're going to get what's coming to you because of the resurrection. And that's kind of the message of the Maccabean martyrdom. And that is taken over by early Christian, uh, early Christian martyrs as well. It's very much not just a, I'm dying for God and being a witness to my faith. It is also, it, it, it is in a sense, the accused Christian standing up to the sovereign empire, the, the sovereignty of Caesar, because martyrdom was a demonstration of Caesar's power. It was a demonstration of Caesar to either withhold life or give life. It was Caesar's ability to control life and death. And so when the martyr says, I want you to take my life, I don't care. And in fact, there's, there's examples of martyrs taking the blade of the gladiator and putting it to their neck because they want to die. They don't want, they, they want to die a martyr's death um, because in that they demonstrate to the crowd that Caesar has no control over them because he can't grant them life because they want to die uh, a martyr's death. So you've, and you also have these fascinating um, descriptions of martyrs. They're described in gladiatorial ways, like they're entering combat, which is very, um, counterintuitive because martyrs died in the noonday ceremonies. There are three, there are three parts of the games, right? You have the beginning where the animal hunts took place. It was a demonstration of Caesar's control over nature and creation. And then you had the noonday part where it was all the criminals that basically it was just a bloodbath. They just got killed by gladiators and soldiers. And, uh, and there are authors who basically say like the most bloodthirsty of the crowd would stick around for this part. And so there was no honor in it. It was Caesar's control over law. And then you had the gladiatorial combat, which was a very honorable thing. In fact, people would volunteer to be gladiators because in that you can gain honor. You can grow in your honor for you and your family. In that, you can earn Caesar's um, approval. There's all this, like, it's, it's great to be a, a gladiator during this time. But when Christians rewrite the martyr's narrative, they write them in as gladiators. They call it training for martyrdom. Um, they, take, uh, they take a sacramentum, much like the martyr would take a sacrament. I'm sorry, the gladiator would take a sacramentum, which was an oath, right? So, right. so they kind of write themselves into history as saying, you want to remove um, our honor, but we're going to reclaim it. But the key is they are gladiators, not 
competing under the editor of the games, which was Caesar. They explicitly say that, say that their editor in, in other, in certain places, their editor of the games is God. And then there are, then, then we, t then we have some great quotes, uh, you know, where people say like, you know, um, Tertullian is one of them. He says, you know, at the, at the last games, God will come and then you will see the real spectacle and it will be <laughs> you destroyed by God. Right. So there's this kind of standing up to the empire through martyrdom. It's, it's a really fascinating uh, thing that's going on. Yeah. I, I found, you know, I've, I've read the new Testament since I read your book and it's actually kind of shocking to me how many moments it seems this is almost explicit that, that, uh, yeah, that Caesar's, I think one of the points you make in the book, and you just mentioned it, is that Caesar's power over the empire was largely the power of, of controlling life and death, and particularly yeah. in the kind of clemency, right? You know, thumbs yeah, up, yeah, exactly. thumbs down. But then you go read Revelation, right? And you read Jesus saying things like, I have the power of death and of Hades. And it's a very direct it's a very, and the, and the resurrection then becomes this very subversive message because it's like, no, Jesus rose from the dead and uh, you can kill me, but I'll raise from the dead and actually you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it was very empowering to all these people. Like it just kind of deflated. It's a very plausible, it just struck me as a very plausible narrative of what would have deflated Caesar's power in that context. Um, yeah, it's just, I found it really, really fascinating. Um, and and that, really, that really does get back to the importance of the resurrection, right? Because, and, and I think people miss this a lot. The resurrection is not just, it's not simply connected to the fact that, that, uh, that um, you know, Christ conquered sin and death. That's it, it definitely important, right? Paul talks about this. This is uh, instrumental to our faith. But something else very importantly is happening here. The, the crucifixion, the event of crucifixion was one of the most, if not the most brutal ways to die in the empire. It was a very clear demonstration that you had no power over the empire. And we would raise you up and show the world that you don't, right? It was, it was really restricted for kind of slaves and criminals of the state. And that's what Jesus is crucified as, right? He's crucified as a criminal of the state, as yeah. a insurrectionist. Um, in fact, it, there's so much irony there when he's sat, when he's, when he's placed beside Barabbas, right? The son of the father, Barabbas, and then Jesus, the son of the father. One's an insurrectionist. One is, uh, one is claimed to be an insurrectionist and the crowd chooses Barabbas. Um, there's so much rich irony in that. But Jesus is crucified for that reason. And three days later, if you think about this, the death penalty given by the empire is overturned by the God of the universe. I mean, that's a very, very direct mm. statement. And I, I quote this, Ted Jennings talks about this in his book, Outlaw Justice, that, you know, Derrida mentions that when you remove the death penalty, when you take what we might say, you know, the muscle out of the death penalty, you remove the rule of law because it is kind of the, the emphasis it is kind of the, the, the period, we might say, of, of law of the state. And so there's something very direct happening in the, re in the resurrection itself from crucifixion and why Jesus is killed. I, think they're, I don't think those things are um, by happenstance. Mm. Um, when, you, when you started talking, you mentioned this article by Christer Stendhal, which was a, a, a kind of a motivation to pursue this project or an initial piece of your journey toward the project. Um, and as some people know, there's, there's been a claim in certain Pauline scholarship that, that Protestant theology has traditionally laid too much emphasis on the individual in Paul. Um, uh, but while, while, while not necessarily pushing us all the way back to older formulation, your work does seem to challenge the notion that we don't get some sort of notion of the, the individual in Paul or in, in the New Testament. And it's, and it's interesting to see this emphasis dovetailed in the work of several historians who are actually not New Testament scholars, like Remy Brog and Larry Seedentop and Tom Holland. Um, can you comment on this development? Uh, you know, uh, do we see then, uh, you know, now, now thinking more in terms of kind of how this develops as a trajectory, I think maybe some of your later, your future work wants to focus on this. Do we see a kind of cryptic ideal, uh, a seed that is the, the backdrop of later emphases in our civilization uh, in this period? Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's ultimately what I was kind of proposing is that there that 
it's not it's not as if Augustine just kind of made it up out of thin air or and it's not as if just it just kind of popped up with Luther or something like that. But there's this slow development. And I think that it's its seed is found in Christian Pauline theology. Right. This emphasis on on the self and the individual being raised from the dead and and, and all of these kinds of things. And so I, I kind of tried to give kind of a, we might say a nuanced answer to that question to say like it's not so much maybe maybe we don't have to say that either Paul was a individually focused and not um, communal focused or b that he was communal focused and not individual focused or something like this maybe it wasn't necessarily about what Paul said but how Paul said it and how what his theology did developed understandings of the self Right. Mm. So maybe, maybe, and maybe I'm not explaining this as, as clearly as I want to, but maybe it has less to do with the theological articulation as it has to do with how the theological articulation shaped the way the human sees him or herself. And that's what I was trying to say that as the Christian theology developed, it created the individual with the internal self that was disciplined and saw him or herself as individually responsible before God. And so thus needing to discipline and, um, according to the community, the, the norms of community, which is found in, in the Christian circles. And this is exactly what Foucault notes when he discusses the concept of pastoral power. So Foucault says that the, um, the uh, beginnings of discipline power, disciplinary power, which is what many people would call the individualistic introspective self, the beginnings of that started in pastoral power, which began in the fourth century in the monasteries. Um, all I was simply trying to say, really in basic form, is that it didn't start in the monasteries. It moved into the monasteries after Christianity became dominant in the constant in, in the uh, Constantinian Empire. So, so yeah, I think I think the way Christian theology articulated certain things, like the resurrection, shaped the material conditions, and um, shaped the material conditions, and then um, uh, shaped the way people see saw themselves, basically. Right. Right. That's really helpful. Um, you know, and that, and that brings up something, you know, that, that kind of naturally reads, and I'm, I'm going to ask these questions a little out of order here, uh, but the, the pastoral implications uh, of your work, one could imagine emphasis on disciplinary power being turned into a, a vision of the Christian life that was kind of miserable and oppressive, but, but presumably that's not needed. So, you know, maybe help us navigate that. What do you think can be drawn out pastorally from, from this work? from this kind of emphasis? Um, I, you know, I think, I think most importantly, um, just the understanding of, you know, uh, just the understanding of uh, the fact that, that the material world shapes the way we act, right? Uh, and, and ideas do have consequences on the material world. It's not so much that we have an idea and then we act based on that idea. I think there's a kind of an intermediary, which is the things around us, the stuff around us. And I think that that's important um, to remember from a pastoral perspective. Uh, you know, we often see people make decisions that are very uh, contrary to what their ideas say. And it's the material world that kind of shifts that a little bit, I think. Um, that's number one. But yeah, the disciplinary part is important too. I, I think if, if what I argue is correct, if it's accurate, then it's important to, to live a life. And, and Christian theology says this, right? To live a life as if you know and you believe that God sees your true intentions in your heart and he sees inside, not just the actions themselves, but inside. And so discipline is not necessarily a bad thing entirely, right? It's, it right. can be used in a negative way um, and uh, in that. But, but to kind of say like, you know what, I want to act as if I'm being watched at all times is, is not always a bad thing. Um, and it can be very helpful as well. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, and I suppose part of what we'd want to say there is is that uh, the where where that becomes non oppressive perhaps is to factor in who's watching us and how. In other words, yeah. uh, you know, saying God is watching us, but He doesn't impute our sins to us, right. which doesn't mean be lax and you can just sin and not you know worry about it or something like that. But the idea isn't that being watched is sort of quite the same thing as sort of the nineteenth uh, century spinster making sure you wash your hands properly all the time, twenty four seven or something like yeah. this. Uh, yeah. But it's 
Go ahead. And the, the emphasis of, of God's grace and forgiveness is important from a pastoral perspective on this too. Knowing that people live their life, knowing that this is, this is the way the modern subject sees him or herself, to emphasize from a pastoral perspective that yes, but the forgiveness of God comes not from how well you discipline yourself. It comes from how well you give yourself up to the Lord and trust in him and really follow, follow him and, and lean on his grace. Right. 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 That's very helpful. Um, how do you think your study relates to the larger question of interpreting the rise of Christianity? You know, there's, of course, a lot of, you know, kind of apologetic material on this, which is, you know, can be good and helpful. Uh, but I wonder if your argument, even if one were not trying to force something out of the data, uh, lends credence to a to a some notion of historical resurrection, the fact of a historical resurrection. That is to say, is it implausible that the idea of resurrection could have taken the imaginative hold that it did, apart from at least the early Christian belief that Jesus had in fact risen from the dead because they they thought they saw him? So I'm kind yeah. of curious how yeah you put those historical bits together. Yeah, uh, so I would I would say unquestionably that that all of the the disciples and all of the early Christian community thought that Jesus rose from the dead, right? This that, that Jesus's body was no longer in the tomb, and that's what drove all of this. Um, and and that's you know what I, what I believe as well, and in kind of a a, um, a historical and material resurrection. I think it. I would say this to just to be just to be clear. I think. My work kind of lends itself in that direction, but doesn't require that. It could right. simply be the idea, right? Uh, my work just definitely does not require that for the for the argument to function as such. But I think it I think it does lend itself in that direction because, I mean, to have this event shape in so monumental a way an entire empire um, is a is a pretty dramatic thing. And if you know you have this rising kind of movement that says, um, yeah, the Caesar's blade is blunt. Jesus rose from the dead and the death penalty was overturned. Well, you just kind of, as many apologetics folks have said, you just prop the body out and say, well, no, actually not, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> it never happened, you know? And so there is kind of, I think it does kind of lend itself in that direction that, that it wasn't kind of snuffed out. The idea wasn't snuffed out. And I think that the reason why that, I mean, personally, I think the reason why that was is because, well, Jesus rose from the dead. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, before I, I ask my, my final question, uh, tell us, you know, what you're working on now, you know, what your, your current projects are, or maybe what you want to be working on just so people can follow your work. Cause I think it's just really helpful and fascinating. Yeah. Ever since, you know, ever since I, I came into the army chaplaincy full time, this is what I do now full time. My, emphases I think have switched more to how these same ideas that I that I analyzed in antiquity shape the modern kind of human uh, so I just I just presented a, a lecture at Manhattan College on how uh, rituals in the military shapes the the, the understanding of the self because Foucault also talks about at the during the rise of disciplinary power you also have the rise of habituated um, calisthenics and exercise in the military because mm. the military is the first place where discipline where pastoral power latches onto and really kind of becomes disciplinary power and so I kind of analyzed um, uh, really I analyzed the development of the soldier through ritual to be a particular kind of human and then from that I argued that it might be helpful to view wartime trauma through, um, through the lens of kind of ritual and theodicy. So this idea that when, um, you know, when ritual develops a particular understanding of the world, it pre presents a particular understanding of how we see what the good is and what the desirable is. And for, in military settings in the modern period, that is, that is war and combat. But what happens when there's no kind of theology, we might say, behind that, that kind of upholds that, um, it creates this kind of fissure. Now, religions and theologies create theodicy to cover that gap. Um, but what happens when there's no theodicy to do that? So that's kind of what I'm working on right now um, is really more in the lens of ritual and military and that. I do have some other interests that I want to pursue. I eventually want to write a book on Foucault's articulation of the soul. Um, I have a lot of, and, and one that I'm really trying to, to finish up is um, 
kind of an introduction, a Christian introduction to critical theory, because yeah. I think, as I mentioned, you know, I think one of our, what we really have to do as Christians, I think it's vitally important for us, um, and not just scholars, but all Christians, is to read charitably and, um, and to read graciously and to, to take our issues where we take issues, but not make them up, right? And not straw man. I think that that's right. sinful. Um, right. So, so I, I've started and I'm, I'm hoping to finish this up hopefully in a couple months, um, kind of an introduction to critical theory so that folks can kind of sit back and say, okay, what is, what is this thing that's going on? Who are these theorists and what are they after um, without necessarily just going on the defense right away? Right. Well, I'm sure we'll have a future interview about that then. Uh, I should say Lord willing, if I'm being uh, uh, good about this, uh, being, a, yeah. being a good Calvinist here. Uh, <laughs> As I always ask in, in these interviews, uh, you know, the final question I always want to put out is, what, what do you think we need to be looking at more in, in uh, you know, in your field, in early Christian studies? And what questions do you think are unasked that could and should be asked, you know, within this? Yeah. Yeah, I honestly would say I, I can't, I, I don't really know, because I've, <laughs> I've kind of moved out of that field right now. I'm kind of thinking about different things. My mind yeah. is in directions all the time. I would say this, I think one of the important things is to, on both sides of scholarship, on both kind of uh, more evangelical sides and more liberal sides, is to kind of see this, to mediate the diversity and uh, kind of um, homogeneity of, of Christianity in the early period, to, to recognize that there is diversity present, right? That it's not this clear, clean development of purity that becomes all of a sudden kind of grows and then you know the catholic church comes in and then the reformation recovers this pure thing in the past that it was really kind of messy at the beginning and we're trying they're trying to figure things out and talk about things and and they're you know it's whenever you're working with ideas for the first time sometimes it looks a little messy and be okay with that right but similarly not to, to also not say it was so diverse because we get some scholars who are like well it's so diverse we don't even have a thing we can call christianity and i'm like really? I mean, clearly we have a thing that we can say, these were early Jesus followers, right? What we want, want to call Christianity or Christian Judaism or whatever you want to call it, there was this movement happening and we can't discount that because there were divergent strands and that. I think that's really helpful uh, to kind of emphasize. So that, that's kind of, that's kind of what I would, what I would say, but I don't write at the present time, I don't really have any interests in, in the field of early Christian studies right now. I might go back there for something, um, and maybe analyze more of what happens when the conclusion of my book becomes pastoral power in the mo in the monastic period. That's a that's an interesting topic to me. Yeah, that develop that late antique development yeah. there. Yeah, 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 that'd be really interesting. Well, Patrick, this has been really great uh, to our listeners. You've been listening to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast. I've been talking with Dr. Patrick Steffen, who has been informing us about his book, The Power of Resurrection, and various other things. Uh, that's all for today, and until next time, uh, we'll see you later.